welcome to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a weekly news analysis and history podcast covering the global rise of the right wing. I'm Craig Johnson, PhD candidate in history. Today I thought we'd start out by talking a little bit about what fascism is, uh, what it isn't, and how it differs from mainstream conservatism, and why that distinction is useful for us. So let's start with some history. The word fascist comes uh, from the Latin fasces, uh, which initially meant a bundle of rods surrounding an axe. Now, you may have seen this symbol uh, used in political context throughout the Western world. Uh, for example, there are two fasci uh, adorning the walls of the United States House of Representatives. Um, this is because the fasci were a Roman symbol of power and authority. Now, in Italy, by the 1920s and 30s, uh, this bundle, this fasci concept, uh, had come to mean something more general. Uh, the Italian fascio means bundle in the same way it means a bundle of sticks, but it can also signify a league or a group of people. Uh, the name had been used previously um, to describe factions, various political organizations, um, but Mussolini chose it specifically to name his new political organization, uh, the Italian Fascist Party. I'll probably get into the history of the Italian fascist party itself uh, in a later episode, but in keeping with the theme of a general introductory episode, uh, I think that it's more helpful to talk about the trajectories that many different fascist groups experienced during the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Now, in that time, and in fact in all of human history, only three clearly fascist organizations have ever taken state power. Uh, that is, that they have ended up in the driver's seat of a national government. Uh, two of those are the ones that you're probably the most familiar with, uh, the Italian Fascist Party and the Nazi Party in Germany. Um, a lesser known case is uh, Austria, which immediately prior to World War II had an election between two separate fascist parties, um, one of which was a sort of indigenous Aust Austrian fascist party that wanted to remain a sovereign but fascist country, and the other one was effectively uh, a branch of the German Nazi party which wanted to join Germany. Um, they eventually won. Uh, this was an event called the Anschluss. In any case, those are the three times that fascism has ever actually ascended on its own to state power. We have Italy, Germany, and Austria. Well, that doesn't fully exhaust uh, what fascism is and what it was and the type of violence that it caused back in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Many other fascist parties and political organizations shared power with other members of the right wing. Uh, the paradigmatic cases here would be Spain, Portugal, and Romania. Uh, in all of these countries, uh, fascist organizations shared power with broader right-wing groups. So, for example, we have the Falange in Spain, which collaborated with the military regime of Franco, um, eventually becoming the only official party organization allowed within Spain. Um, but in effect, they were a sort of minor branch of a broader right-wing coalition, which in the case of Spain was primarily led by the military itself. Now, after these six cases, Italy, Germany, and Austria, Spain, Portugal, and Romania, we have a much larger set of sort of fuzzier examples. These are groups of intellectuals, protesters, student groups, very small parties, um, which espoused an ideology which deserves to be called fascist. Now, these groups are, in effect, universal. Uh, they appear in almost every major country all over the world. 
uh, in the 1920s and 30s and into the 40s. And in many cases, uh, they did not disappear. Um, After the defeat of Nazi Germany and fascist Italy in World War II, fascism was a little bit harder to get away with being openly, uh, especially in Europe and North America, but that didn't really stop fascists from continuing to organize, politicize, and spread their ideologies. Now, what exactly is that ideology? What is fascism? Well, I'll start by talking about what fascism claims to be. Uh, Fascism typically claims to be what they call, quote, a third way between classic liberalism and the Marxist left. Now, by liberalism, for you listeners in the United States, they're not talking about uh, Democrats. Uh, They're talking about classic liberalism, lowercase l liberalism. Uh, This means a belief in free elections, a belief in capitalism, a belief in legal equality. In other words, um, the basis of most Western governments today By the Marxist left, they are, of course, referring specifically to socialists and communists, um, but also fascists hate anarchists, uh, fascists hate feminists, fascists hate most people who uh, promote any sort of ideology that could be reasonably described as left wing. However, one thing that you might be surprised to learn about fascists is that they're typically also very critical of conservatives. Uh, Fascists, historically speaking at least, uh, were always looking at the other members of the right wing and thinking that they weren't going far enough, uh, that they weren't thinking about the future, that they were stuck in the past, uh, that they were too mired in tradition. And what this means is that fascism was able to claim uh, a political status called the third way. Uh, Again, for those of you in the United States and Britain, you might be familiar with this concept uh, from Tony Blair or from Bill Clinton. Um, But the fascist third way predates them uh, by over half a century. When fascists say that they were third way, uh, they mean between the left and the right. Fascists typically talk about themselves as being neither of the left wing nor the right wing. However, we shouldn't let the fascists determine that all on their own. Uh, In fact, almost every observer who is not themselves a fascist would agree that fascists are a feature of the political right wing. And we know this because of what fascists actually do believe and what they actually do support. So I'm going to go through a sort of laundry list of general fascist platforms, policies and politics. Uh, This is not exhaustive. So there are many fascist parties that believe things that would not be on this list. Uh, And it's not exclusive in that I don't mean to imply that a group needs to believe all of these things in order to be fascist. This is just a sort of like rough and ready way to try to understand what fascism means, who fascists are. So we've already covered some of these things. Fascists uh, are critical of both the left and the right. And this is something that differentiates them from both conservatives and much of the left wing, be it the anarchist left, the Marxian left, or a more identitarian left. Fascists are also critical of democracy, uh, openly critical of democracy, typically. Um, This means that they would openly say that they have aims that cannot be fulfilled through the electoral process, um, that they're critical of the idea that democracies, elections, republicanism can actually represent um, themselves and the people. And talking about representing themselves and the people gets us to one of the biggest and I would say one of the more inarguable universal aspects of fascism is that fascism is nationalistic. 
Now, the subject of nationalism is by itself uh, a big topic that would have to be covered uh, in several other later episodes or which you should pursue your understanding of on your own. Mm-hmm. However, a quick and rough and ready definition of nationalism is that it is an ideology that believes that the true appropriate representatives of a nation that is a people um, should be the ones who determine the course of the country, the state, the government uh, that governs them. Now, you don't have to be a fascist in order to be a nationalist, but you do pretty much have to be a nationalist in order to be a fascist. Now, if fascists are anti-democratic, or at least critical of democracy, and they are nationalistic in that they believe that certain people should be in control and certain other people should be excluded from control at the very least uh, if they don't believe that those people should be oppressed or in some of the more extreme cases um, eliminated from existence through genocide or through mass deportation, then how do they think that political power should be developed and exercised? Well, this brings us to one of the other main differences between fascism and the right wing in general, sort of more mainstream conservatives, is that fascists believe in violence in itself. Uh, Fascists don't just believe that violence is a means to attain certain political ends. Fascists believe that violence is good. Uh, Not just good for the world, but good for the people who are perpetrating that violence. What this means is that fascists often participate in partisan violence. Uh, They attack their political opponents physically. This is a major part of the stories of the rise of the Italian fascist party and the Nazi party in Germany. Um, But it is also a major part of the story of many other smaller fascist groups throughout the world. So with these three main criteria, first, uh, they're being critical of democracy as such. Um, Second, their nationalism and their belief in the exclusion of some people from the political world. And third, their belief in violence, not just as a tool, uh, but as a way to remake the world in a positive direction. Uh, You have a sort of pretty general and pretty useful way to identify whether or not a group, a person, an ideology, is fascist. And if we apply these criteria to groups that are active in the United States and elsewhere, uh, we can see that some of them are truly, openly, brazenly fascist. Uh, One particular example would be former chief strategist for President Trump, Steve Bannon, um, who does believe in the constitutive power of violence to remake the world. He is an open nationalist. Um, And he openly questions the efficacy of democracy as such as a way to express the Commonwealth. However, his former boss, President Donald Trump, uh, doesn't exactly meet our definitions of fascism, uh, primarily because his vision for the world that he wants to build isn't substantially different from the one that we live in today. You know, he sort of wants capitalism to work a little bit more for the rich and for the United States to be somewhat more nationalistic in the way that it organizes itself. Now, this isn't to say that his rhetoric isn't sometimes more extreme, uh, but on that note, I would call your attention back to one of the examples that I talked about earlier, uh, the case of Spain, uh, where a otherwise broadly conservative political movement 
under Franco had fascist elements within it and used fascist rhetoric and aesthetics in order to support itself. Now, Trump isn't anywhere close to that. He doesn't openly accept people who are brazen fascists um, in his government, at least anymore, now that Bannon is gone. However, Trump does use certain elements of fascistic rhetoric and aesthetics. Uh, for example, the Make America Great Again slogan harkens back to the America First movement, which attempted to prevent the United States from entering World War II and entering into conflict with Nazi Germany. In his use of and interest in fascistic rhetoric and aesthetics in order to shore up what is otherwise a relatively normal right-wing policy platform, uh, although it yes, is characterized by particularly incendiary right-wing and fascistic uh, spikes. Trump is part of a broader global scene of right-wing leaders and right-wing political movements that harken back to fascism without using the name, without quite reaching that level. Um, other examples in Europe would be Marie Le Pen, um, Viktor Orban in Hungary, Geert Wilders in the Netherlands, and there's a whole list. Um, throughout the rest of the world, other potential examples would be Modi in India. Uh, arguably, Modi might be the closest to uh, open fascism of almost any world leader today. Um, Duterte in the Philippines, um, Bolsonaro in Brazil. All of these leaders participate in this sort of slide toward a more extreme right-wing politics. And I would argue that that is what we're seeing today. That is what characterizes uh, the political environment that we see ourselves in globally. We're not yet, yet, within the grips of fascism. Instead, what we are seeing is fascism returning to something like the political mainstream. Fascists becoming useful, palatable, potential allies again. And as they do so, as they become more influential, both rhetorically and politically, I think that we need to pay closer attention to them and to the right wing in general than we typically have. And that's the purpose of this podcast. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a podcast I desperately wish didn't need to be made. We'll be back next week with more analysis, history, and context for the rise of the radical right. <laughs>